as the children are being dismissed for junior church, let's uh, take our Bibles this morning and open them to the book of Genesis, chapter 37. Taking a look at, Lord willing, verses 12 through 24 this morning. The title of our message this morning is From the Privilege, From Privilege to the Pit. You ever felt like that? Things are going swell in your life and all of a sudden, whoops, the ground just <laughs> literally opened up from under me. As you know, we've been moving through the book of Genesis uh, verse by verse. God, through the patriarchs Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is bringing forth a nation, the nation of Israel, with a very, very special calling. God has chosen to bless the world through this nation, not the least of which is Jesus who we just sang about, came to us through the nation of Israel. You all know that, right? Jesus was Jewish. Jesus was not a Southern Baptist. I can get myself lynched in Texas saying stuff like that. Uh, He wasn't a Presbyterian. It wasn't a Methodist. He was hardcore Jewish. Couldn't get more Jewish than Jesus. And if you don't have God raising up this nation that he formed through the patriarch Abraham, you don't have Jesus. And beyond that, you don't have the Bible. Every writer of Scripture, the only one they debate anymore is Luke, but every writer of Scripture was Jewish. And so the nation of Israel has been formed through God's work, through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but now the nation of Israel has to be preserved from decadence where they were in Canaan, they have to be shipped to Goshen in Egypt. And when God does a work, he selects a person. And the man that he selected is really just a 17-year-old at this point. This is where Joseph enters the picture. Joseph, from age 17 to age 30, will not understand anything that's happening in his life. I'm sure to him it was just a blur. And he probably thought many times that he was outside of God's will, and yet God said to Joseph, just keep trusting me because I'm going to do a work through you. So the story of Joseph starts in Genesis 37 where we saw a coat, A special coat that Jacob gave Joseph that made the rest of his brothers jealous. And the jealousy is compounded, we saw, with Joseph's dreams. Joseph gets two dreams from God. Revealing what God in the short run was going to do in Joseph's life. And his brothers didn't like that either. Because it put Joseph, just like the, the coat... The coat of many colors that put him in a place of preeminence over his brothers. And so that takes us now into the pit. Uh, Joseph, uh, excuse me, Genesis chapter 37 verses 12 through 24. Verses 12 through 17 is Joseph's search for his brothers. And then verses 18 through 24 
is his brother's conspiracy to kill Joseph. Notice, if you will, verses 12 through 17, we have the location there. It says in Genesis 37, verse 12, Then his brothers went to pasture their father's flock in Shechem. Where are they now? They are in Hebron. You see where Hebron is there, bottom of the screen. Uh, if you look at verse 14, you'll see a reference to Hebron. Genesis 35, verse 27 also indicates that that's where they were. And they're sent by Jacob uh, up north to Shechem to uh, pasture a flock, Jacob's flock. And it's at this point that Jacob sends Joseph to sort of check on their progress. And so we have Jacob's initiation of this. Look at verse 13. It says, Israel, now that's a synonym for Jacob, as you know. Jacob's name was changed to Israel. Israel said to Joseph, are not your brothers pasturing the flock in Shechem? Come, and I will send you to them. And he, that's Joseph, said to him, I will go. So go uh, check on how your brothers are doing. And probably that happened because earlier in the chapter, in fact, if you go back to verse 2, it says, Joseph brought back a bad report about them to their father when they were pasturing earlier. So Joseph, and this is what really enraged his brothers, had kind of this special relationship with their father where he would actually use Joseph, who was not the firstborn, but the eleventhborn, to kind of track the progress uh, and report back to dad how the other brothers were doing. And this all led to this uh, simmering resentment they had against Joseph. They didn't like him for that reason. They didn't like him because of the coat. They didn't like him because of the dreams, plural, that he had that seemed to elevate Joseph above them. But you look here in verse 13, and what does Joseph say? He said to him, I will go. And what you're going to discover as you move through the Joseph story is Joseph is a prefigurement or a type of Jesus Christ. In fact, as you move through this, and I'm sort of making a list as I go through, similarities between Jesus and Joseph, uh, the typology is going to become so overwhelming that it will eventually be undeniable. We don't know yet that this is a type of Jesus. It's uh, sort of a prefigurement. We're not aware of that yet, reading Genesis. But by the time the New Testament is written and we have the record of the life of Christ and we can compare the life of Christ to Joseph, we see some parallels which are undeniable. It's interesting that Joseph, like the prophet Daniel, is one of the few people in the Bible where nothing negative is really said about them. I'm not arguing that they're sinless because we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I'm just saying as you move through the Bible, everyone's skeletons come right out of the closet. Everybody's warts are unveiled. 
we see people for who they are, but not so Daniel and not so Joseph. Joseph seems to suffer on account of his innocence. And you see the typology building here where Joseph responds to Jacob and he obeys. It kind of sounds like Jesus, doesn't it? Not my will, speaking to the Father, not my will be done, but thy will be done. And I think that's, although we don't execute this as fallen humans perfectly, that's really what the Lord is looking for from us. Uh, as one of my friends says, God is looking for fat Christians. And we play a good role in the fat part with all of our banqueting that we do here. <laughs> but that's not what I'm talking about. Fat means F, faithful, A, available, T, teachable. That's the kind of person that God is looking for to accomplish great things through. And you notice that Joseph doesn't second-guess his father there in verse 13. He just does what he's told. We have a saying in our house, and you may have this in your home, that delayed obedience is actually disobedience. We do that a lot with the Lord. We are told by the Lord to do something in His Word, we have a clear understanding of who he is, and then we kind of, you know, drag our feet a little bit. Maybe not more, maybe not just a little bit, maybe a lot. But you'll notice Joseph doesn't do that. He just obeys what his father says. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 5 through 9, says this of Jesus. It says, Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will. O God, as it is written about me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first order in order to establish the second. That's actually a quote there, Hebrews 10 quoting Psalm 40, where God, although he started the animal sacrificial system, which had a place pointing ultimately to Jesus, God the Father looked at the animal sacrificial system of the Old Testament and he said, I'm not pleased with it. It was a good system for that time, but God said, ultimately, I'm not pleased with it. And one of the problems with it is the animal had no choice in whether they were going to be slaughtered or not. They did not have to lay down any will. Uh, They were whisked away into slaughter without even realizing what was happening. So that system itself could never um, garner somebody volitionally laying down their will to God the Father. That system, of course, points to Jesus, who had a will. And he said, with that will, not not my will be done, but thy will be done. And volition was now added to the sacrificial system. And God says, I'm pleased with that. Uh, You see this type of typology building in the life of Joseph. 
Jacob uh, gives Joseph, verse 14, very specific instructions. It says, then he said to him, go now and see about the welfare of your brothers and the welfare of the flock and bring word back to me. And as we mentioned earlier, Joseph had that kind of relationship with Jacob. And he gives him some geography here, end of verse 14. He says, so he sent him away from the valley of Hebron and came to Shechem. Now, we read these things in the Bible, but that's actually a journey of about three to four days in terms of walking. So Joseph is located in Hebron. His brothers have gone up to Shechem. You'll notice that they entered Shechem without a war or a battle. And the reason for that is they had the right of conquest in Shechem. Because you remember what Simeon and Levi did in Genesis 34 in Shechem. Uh, this is why when Joshua enters the promised land, uh, there's no battle in Shechem either. Because the Canaanites, I believe, recognized Israel as already controlling Shechem through right of conquest. It's just a matter of piecing that together with what transpired with Simeon and Levi back in Genesis chapter 34. But at any rate, Joseph is told by Jacob to leave Hebron, to go up north to Shechem, find your brothers, uh, see how they're doing in terms of pasturing the flock, and I want you to report back to me. So Joseph does what he's told. And he takes this three to four day walk. And then as you go down to verse 15, you'll see the circumstances involved. It says, a man found him, and behold, he was wandering around in the field. Now, who's the identity of this man in Shechem? We're not told. I sure would like to believe it's an angel, although the text doesn't say that. Do you believe in guardian angels? People that show up sort of... You know, almost uh, serendipitously in our lives to, to help us, to, to guide us. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 14 says, Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? And angels can actually appear as people. Hebrews 13 verse 2 says, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some of you have entertained angels unaware. Now, of course, I'm maybe stretching a little bit because this text doesn't say an angel. But it's interesting how the Lord will put people in our path sort of serendipitously to guide us the right way. You know, I, I just got back from a, had the privilege of speaking at a prophecy conference in upstate New York. Uh, they think that our weather today is really, really hot. <laughs> Snow on the ground, and here's me trying to, trying to get to this conference and land in Washington, D.C. and have to take a shuttle over to uh, Gate Z in Washington, D.C. in Dulles Airport. I mean, do you know where Gate Z is? Um, 
and I, I was just completely lost. And they kind of put me in this tram, and I, I'm moving along, and I'm kind of looking around for a map or something, anything, trying to check my phone. Is the Wi-Fi working? Where in the, where in the world is gate Z? And so I, I asked the guy in front of me, can you help me find gate Z? And before I even got the words out of my mouth, this guy behind me that I wasn't even talking to, you know, interrupts me mid-sentence and tells me exactly where gate Z is. And he starts to give me these really specific instructions about, okay, you're gonna, you're gonna go, you're gonna walk here and you're gonna hit a subway. <laughs> and my wife is laughing because that's how I used to, or still give directions. Just go to McDonald's, take a left, uh, keep going, you'll hit a Starbucks, go right. And the guy's like speaking my language, you know. <laughs> and so I'm walking along, I get out of the tram and I start walking, I start walking the wrong direction and the guy runs up behind me and changes my shoulders so I'll <laughs> be going the right direction. And I got to where I was supposed to go. But it's just amazing to me how the Lord will do that for you. He'll put these people in your your path that you don't even know to sort of help you on your way. So here's Joseph, the 17-year-old, leaves Hebron, goes up to Shechem. He can't he can't find his brothers, but here's this man wandering around in the same field that Joseph was in, giving him some instruction. And a conversation starts. There's an inquiry. And notice it's the man starting the conversation. It says, and the man asked him, what are you looking for? And then you have Joseph's uh, response. It says, he said, I am looking for my brothers. Please tell me where they are pasturing the, the flock. And the man knows exactly where the brothers are. It's there in verse 17. Then the man said, they have moved from here. For I have heard them say, let's go to Dothan. Where in the world is Dothan? You just keep moving north. When you read something like this in the Bible, you at some point have to ask yourself, why is this here? Because every word in this book was put here by divine design. You know, why in the world do we have to know that Joseph is going to meet his brothers in Dothan? And and the text doesn't even explain it to you. But when you study the background of the Bible, which is very, very significant, what you'll discover is there's a massive trade route. It comes from the west and it ends up in Egypt, where Joseph is going to end up sold as a slave into Egypt, and it goes right through that area where Dothan is. And so God providentially put Joseph in exactly the right place at the right time, and he used conversations of strangers to get Joseph moving in the right direction. That's one of the exciting things about walking with the Lord. As you walk with the Lord in his will, you'll find him doing these kinds of things all of the time. And it's so uncanny, you have to look back and you say, was that an angel I was talking to? Some of you have entertained angels unaware. I sure would like to believe that man in the field was an angel. It doesn't say that. 
God can use an angel, he can use a person, he can use a human being, because God guides our our steps. And you go down to verse 17 and you see essentially Joseph's journey to Dothan, second part of the verse. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them in uh, Dothan. Now, Dothan is an additional day's walk. So here's this 17-year-old. He's been walking three to four days, and now he has to walk an additional day. And so he's found his brothers in an exhausted state. He, he's being betrayed in an exhausted state. Kind of reminds us of Jesus, doesn't it? Who was so physically weak that Simon of Cyrene had to be recruited. Matthew's gospel tells us to shoulder the burden of the cross as Christ was taking that cross attached to his back up to the own place of his execution. Boy, that was a a cruel thing the Romans did to you. Not only did they execute you, but you had to carry to the proper place the means of your execution. And that was an exhausting process where Simon of Cyrene was recruited to help because Jesus was just too weak. Arnold Fruchtenbaum says this of Dothan. He says, so in verse 17, Joseph journeys to, to Dothan and Joseph went after his brethren and found them in Dothan. Dothan is north of Shechem. So notice that these are real places of geography that we're reading about here. That's how God discloses word to us. This is not just a spiritual book about, you know, how to, uh, you know, get proper spiritual information. We're reading here actual history. God disclosed his truth to us in an actual, real life, literal, geographical, archaeological setting that can be validated. This is not uh, veggie tales here. This is not Jack and the Beanstalk. I bring this up constantly because the secularist drives a wedge between faith and history. And they'll say to the youth, well, we we have the real history here in the classroom. We have the PhDs. And you folks can get together at church all you want, but you're just doing religion. You're just doing faith. It's not real history. And I'm here to tell you that the Bible doesn't unpack itself that way. This is real history. These are real people. These are real events that actually happened. In fact, uh, Paul the Apostle in 1 Corinthians 15, when he talks about the resurrection, which is a cardinal Christian doctrine, without the resurrection, you can't have Christianity. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, don't, don't take my word for it. Check out the 500 eyewitnesses that saw Jesus in his resurrected body. And then Paul says most of them are alive. And if that factual point could not be validated, 1 Corinthians would have been discredited right out of the gate. So the Bible itself will base its 
veracity and authenticity on actual history that can be documented. Dothan is north of Shechem, another day's journey. The situation in Shechem may still have been somewhat tense, but for one reason or another, they, the brothers, had chosen to go further north, and Dothan was the city located, watch this now, on the north-south trunk route. Ah, that's why this information is given about Dothan. Dothan was also located on the east-west trade between Gilead and the coastal plain where it connected with the Via Maris that in turn would go south into where? Egypt. That's why he has to get to Dothan because he's going to be sold as a slave into Egypt and you can't do that unless you're on the right trade route. Dr. Fruchtenbaum summarizes all this sets the stage for the selling of Joseph. Not there, there, I'm here to tell you, folks, as you read your Bible, there's nothing irrelevant presented. Every, every word means something. And as you're going through the Bible and you, you read something like this, it doesn't make sense. Just, just ask the Lord to help you understand it. Go to the right sources commentators like Arnold Fruchtenbaum that can help us sort of wrap our minds around it. And and what you'll see is the whole Bible starts to make perfect sense. And it's at this point that the brothers see Joseph coming there in Dothan and they develop a conspiracy to kill him. We've got to get this guy dead. We don't like this guy because, number one, he's our father's favorite, and he's the 11th born, not the first born. Number two, he got the coat. That should have gone to Reuben, the first born. Number three, this 17-year-old just has had two dreams that we studied last week that elevate the 11th born over the rest of us. And they don't like him. And and by the way, he comes and he watches what we do and he goes and tells dad if we're stepping out of line. So you, you put all this together and they develop very fast a conspiracy to kill Joseph. There's a plot to kill him there, verses 18 through 20. Notice the timing. When they saw him from a distance and before he came close to them, they plotted against him to put him to death. So here's the 17-year-old in a weakened condition, three to four days walking just to get to Shechem, another day's walk just to get to Dothan. He's obviously in a weakened condition. His brothers see him coming and they start to figure out how we're going to get this guy dead. Well, Pastor, you don't believe in conspiracy theories, do you? Folks, conspiracies are all over the Bible. A conspiracy is just two or more people plotting to to execute a crime of some sort. And then they take a substantial step, the legal system says, towards the accomplishment of that conspiracy. People have, have gone to jail for conspiracies. Jeremiah chapter 11 and verse 9, it says again, The Lord said to me, a conspiracy exists among the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Here you're seeing one of the most ultimate, the zenith of conspiracies in Scripture. 
And they, they develop this plot. And the plot has a victim. The victim is verse 19. They said to one another, here comes the dreamer. They're jealous on account of his dreams that we saw last week in verses 5 through 11. They don't like the dreams because the dreams elevate Joseph over them. At least that's their understanding of it. They don't understand that through these dreams, God is actually going to deliver the nation, them included. But Joseph is going to have some kind of preeminent role in this deliverance, and he's just the 11th born. How come the, how come the deliverer is not me? They would say to themselves. Just, just basic jealousy. And I'm sad to say that kind of thing happens in the church world constantly. You know, why, why, do, why does so-and-so get that ministry and not me? Why, why does so-and-so get that role instead of me? Why does so-and-so have uh, a spiritual gifting that I don't have? And we fail to understand that all of these roles and all of these ministries and all of these spiritual gifts are there for the good of all of us. And if God elevates one person and starts to work work in and through them, we shouldn't, you know, throw rocks at them because of jealousy. We ought to just say, well, praise the Lord. Because as that person steps out in faith and is used by God, they're going to end up being a blessing to many, many people including us. Jealousy is just a work of the flesh, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. These brothers are just consumed with jealousy to the point they gave Joseph a nickname. Verse 19, here comes the dreamer. Arnold Fruchtenbaum again says this, then came the merchant's journey. They brought Joseph into Egypt. While this was not the brother's intent, by selling him in the place of killing him, they rendered the fulfillment of the dream certain. Now he's commenting on parts of the Joseph story that we haven't studied yet. But there's something very important that he says here. Although they were rendering the dreams null and void by what they were doing, They were actually creating a situation that would cause the fulfillment of them, proving the principle of Scripture, even the wrath of men will end up praising God, close quote. I think that these brothers at the back of their mind were worried that maybe these dreams are true. I mean, maybe this is of God. And I'm so consumed with jealousy that I want to stop God's plan. So we'll, here comes the dreamer. Let's plot to eliminate him. That way God's plan will never be fulfilled. Is that not one of the dumbest things a person can do? How do you stop the plan of God? In fact, the more you try to stop the plan of God, the more God actually uses you to grease the wheels to make the plan move along faster. I mean, I mean, they thought by selling him into as a slave in Egypt, which is going to happen at the end of the chapter, that they could stop these dreams from materializing. All they did is make the accomplishment of the plan in Egypt more speedy and more certain. 
it, it becomes a very dangerous thing to seek to deliberately thwart, stop, or frustrate something that you think or maybe know to be the plan of God because God's plans can't be stopped. Saul, book of Acts, studying it Wednesday night, stamping out the church, trying to stop Christianity dead in its tracks. What, what did God say to Saul, to Saul? Saul, Saul, why do you kick against the goads? Study that metaphor out. That's fascinating. Goads, as I understand it, are those sort of prongs that propel the animals through the chute. And trying to stop the plan of God is like, is like kicking against those very goads. We cannot stop God's plan. You can't halt God's plan. The sooner we get on board with that, we, we should submit to God's plan. But even if you try to stop the plan of God through a conspiracy, the only thing you end up doing at the end of the day is making the plan move along faster. Because we're dealing with, at the end of the day, a sovereign God. And here's the content of their conspiracy, verse 20. It says, now then come and let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits and we will say a wild beast devoured him. Look at this. Then let us see what will become of his dreams. You see why I think they actually believe these dreams are true and they're trying to stop him? Well, if we kill him, the dreams can't come to pass. A conspiracy to commit murder against an innocent man. Kind of sounds like Jesus, doesn't it? You know what Luke 23, verse 12 says? This is very interesting. It's talking about Herod and Pilate. Herod from Israel, Pilate from Rome. They got together to get rid of Jesus, liquidate Jesus. It says in Luke 23, verse 12, And so Herod and Pilate became friends with one another that very day. For previously, they had been enemies towards each other. I mean, the only thing these two hated more than each other was Jesus. (laughs) And so they came together and then they became fast friends. Isn't that an interesting thing that develops? A conspiracy against an innocent man provoked by jealousy. By the way, did you know that as a Christian, you're favored by the Father? Just as Jacob was favoring Joseph, you're favored by God the Father. And as you walk in that favor, don't expect the world to stand around and say, Yay! They'll come against you very fast. It goes with the territory. Jesus warned the disciples of this very thing. John 15, 18 and 19. He said, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world and I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. John, in his little epistle, Chapter 2, verses 15 through 17 says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, 
the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the world, is not rather from the Father, but is of the world. The world is passing away, and also its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. The truth of the matter, folks, is we're living in Satan's domain right now. We're living in enemy territory. We have a a value system that goes against what the world stands for. And the more God sheds his grace and favor on you is the more you won't really fit in with the values of everybody else. I mean, Joseph is directly in the will of God here. And yet there's a conspiracy to, to, to kill him. A tremendous type of, of Christ. A, a tremendous type of the believer against the world. Not because we're rude, crude, and obnoxious. You know, some Christians are just obnoxious. And quite frankly, some of them deserve to be persecuted because they bring it on themselves. And that's not what we're dealing with here. We're, we're dealing with, and I remember back uh, at Long Beach State University when we were doing ministry there, there were some Christians that would paint their heads, uh, hair, different colors, and then we get these giant megaphones. And as the students were going in and out into the classroom, they would start screaming through these megaphones, repent, turn or burn, you know, all this kind of stuff. And the administration would clamp down on them and they would say, well, we're being persecuted for the Lord. No, you're being persecuted because you're an idiot. (laughs) So I'm not talking about being obnoxious. What I'm talking about is simply like Joseph living that sanctified life and experiencing natural resistance from the world. It comes with the, the territory. But as you look there at verse 20, you see there the content of what they want to do. Now, we have an adult in the room, fortunately, Reuben. Reuben uh, has a moment of sanity here and says, well, wait a minute, maybe we ought to hold back on this. And he intervenes, verse 21, but Reuben heard this. And rescued him, that's Joseph, out of their hands. And they were going to kill Joseph right there and then. But Reuben said, let us not take his life. Why Why is Reuben speaking up? Because Reuben comes through Leah and is the firstborn. And so he's acting like a big brother. And Reuben himself develops a plan in terms of how to mitigate the damage. You see that in verse 22. It says, Reuben further said to them, shed no blood. Throw him into this pit that is in the wilderness, but do not lay hands on him. And then it says at the end of verse 22 that he, that's Reuben, might rescue him out of their hands to restore him to their father. Don't murder him, number one. Number two, let's throw him into a pit. Now, obviously, it's still murder. Because the idea is, once he's in the pit, he's going to die of either starvation or he's going to die of thirst. 
But at least when we report back to Jacob or if Jacob ever finds out what happened, we can kind of wash our hands of the whole thing and say, well, we didn't actually physically murder him. So it's sort of a way of avoiding responsibility. Reminds me a lot of Pilate, who was sort of uncomfortable with, you know, the, the Roman trial there presiding over the alleged guilt of Jesus. And even Pilate's wife in a dream, I think this is in Matthew 27, said to Pilate, don't have anything to do with this man, Jesus. He's innocent. Pilate sort of, you know, as we know from the Gospels, washing his hands, it's it's really not my responsibility. And yet Pilate was responsible. He just kind of kicked the can down the road a little bit, but ultimately he was still responsible. That's why this idea is appealing as Reuben presents it to the rest of the brothers. Well, this will at least allow you to say you didn't directly murder him, but you really did. Because you left him in a pit with no food and with no water. And Reuben kind of has an idea that, you know what, I'm going to pull Joseph out of the pit later. Reuben actually is trying to rescue Joseph, and his plan is not going to work out. Why is his plan not going to work out? Because it wasn't God's plan for Joseph to be rescued. If Joseph is rescued by Reuben, how could he be sold as a slave into Egypt? And if he's not sold as a slave into Egypt, how, how could Joseph be elevated to second in command in Egypt so that the family, Genesis 46, will go to Egypt knowing now Joseph is second in command to receive grain in the midst of famine. So Reuben is sort of a rescuer. He thinks he's going to rescue Joseph, but when you drop down to, and we won't read it, Genesis 37, 29, and 30, even Reuben's plan is thwarted. Because once God has a plan, you can't stop it. And the more you try to stop it, the more you're actually expediting it. And so now the plan is executed. Verse 23. First thing they do to Joseph is they take that coat that they hated and they take it right off of him. Verse 23, so it came about when Joseph reached his brothers. Now here is Joseph, three to four day journey, Hebron to Shechem, another day's journey up to Dothan. He's exhausted. So it came about that when Joseph reached his brothers, they stripped Joseph of his tunic, the very colored or multicolored tunic that was upon him that that coat doesn't belong to him he's born number 11 it should have been given to Reuben number one was their mindset can you see the typology in here of Jesus Jesus exhausted being stripped of his garments just prior to his execution Jesus an innocent man being treated this way? John 19, verses 23 and 24, talks about it. 
It says, then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, then took his outer garments and made four parts, a part to each soldier, and the tunic also. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece. So they said to one another, let's not tear it, but cast lots for it to decide whose it shall be. This happened that the scriptures would be fulfilled. Quoting now the Psalms, they, I believe it's Psalm 22, they divided my garments among themselves and they cast lots for my clothing. Therefore the soldiers did these things. They did these things because prophetic scriptures demanded it. I believe they did these things because the Joseph typology demands it. Of all of the sermons and teachings that Jesus gave, if I was given the choice of being there when that teaching was given, of all of the teachings, all of the sermons, and God said to me, okay, you can be physically present 2,000 years ago when this took place. Just pick which sermon you want to listen to. The one I want to listen to is Luke 24 verse 27 and verse 44 the journey on the Emmaus road where Jesus to the disciples in his resurrected body opened their eyes to the scriptures and explained all of these things concerning himself in the law first division of Hebrew Bible the prophets, second division of Hebrew Bible, and the Psalms, which is the prominent book in the third division of the Hebrew Bible. The Hebrews call it Tanakh, Torah, Law, Nabim, Prophets, Kethabim, Writings. And what Luke 24, verse 44 says is he opened their eyes and showed them that all these things pointed to him. I have no idea how he taught that. The the scripture doesn't say. And it's not a terribly long walk when you measure it out, the Emmaus Road. I mean, what what did he what did Jesus talk about? He he talked about it so thoroughly that the passage there ends with the fact that their hearts were burning on fire. And I, I think Jesus unlocked the meaning of this this type of Joseph typology that you see not just in the book of Genesis, but typology all over the Bible. He taught, he taught them about prophecies concerning himself. I would think I wasn't there. Love to be there. Probably started with Genesis 3 verse 15. Might have moved from there to Genesis 3 verse 21 about how Adam and Eve were were clothed with the skin of an innocent animal that had just been killed and right on through the word of God. No, no sermon notes, no PowerPoint. Just listening to the son of God explain how the scriptures pointed to him. I think he would have in that conversation unlocked the Joseph typology. And so these brothers, they take Jesus, uh, excuse me, Joseph, who may be 
a type of Jesus, as we've tried to explain. They strip him and they throw him into a pit. And it's in verse 24. They took him and they threw him into the pit. And look at this. Now the pit was empty without water in it. So there he is without water in a cistern left for dead by the other brothers. Reuben thinks he's going to come back and pull him out, which is a plan Reuben had. Reuben acting like an adult because he's the firstborn. And even Reuben's plan is going to fail because God's program is in motion. And so we end here, verse 24, with Joseph in a pit. That's why we've entitled this message from privilege to the pit. Do you realize as you go through the Bible how many of God's choicest servants spent time in a pit? How about Jeremiah chapter 38? Thrown into a pit. Thinking, oh wow, I've missed God's plan for my life. And yet he's exactly where he's supposed to be. Joseph, as we're going to study is exactly where he's supposed to be. You know, being in a pit, when you think about it, it's a pretty good place to be. Because when you're in a pit, you have no one to trust other than God. If you're you're in a pit, man can't help you. Because we're so um, reliant upon our natural resources to rescue us from problems. I'll buy my way out of this one. My education will get me out of that one. My health and energy and exuberance will help me over here. And God takes you in his walk with you, and he says, I'm going to put you into a circumstance that you can't get out of. And we say to the Lord, Lord, that's terrible. And the Lord says, no, this is needed for your growth. Because I have to, in order to use you, I have to bring you to the end of your own resources. For you have no one to trust in other than me. If you find yourself in a pit today, financial pit, emotional pit, relational pit, career pit, The book of James says you should exalt in your high position. James chapter 1 verses 9 through 11. Teaching this online right now for Chafer Seminary. We record the lectures ahead of time. I was immersed in the book of James last week. And I read this. James 1 verses 9 through 11. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. That's the rich man, the person that is used to buying his way out of his problems. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So the rich man, which is sort of what Joseph was before this conspiracy 
was executed. So the rich man will fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Boy, if I could just get rich and get wealthy and get independent, that would be great. And God says, no, it wouldn't be so great because you wouldn't have to depend upon me and you would fade away as you're going about your business. The person that's advantaged is the person in the pit because he's in this lowly position. But he should exalt in that lowly position because now he's in a position to trust God. It's almost like God has to force our hand into it. And so here's Joseph in a low position, which is really an exalted position. And it gets worse from the human perspective. Next week we'll see it. He's actually sold as a slave, from the pit to a slave. But he is exactly where God wanted him to be. Because God is going to do a great work through this 17-year-old's life. He won't be able to put the pieces of the puzzle together until he's 30. But when you're 30, you'll look back on the pit and it will all make sense. And God says in the interim, trust me. You know, when when someone picks you up from the airport, as happened to me in New York, and they're driving me from Rochester to upstate New York, Finger Lakes area, I don't have to sit there and demand a map if I trust the person driving the car. I don't have to know every turn, every stop, Are we there yet? All I got to do is trust the person driving and I can just sit back and relax. May I just say to you that maybe in 2024 we should adopt more of that mindset. Instead of demanding answers to everything, why not just trust the person driving the car? He knows exactly what he's doing. I don't need to know. And God is about to do this great work through Joseph. Maybe you're here today and you're in a pit, and I'm here to tell you that Jesus paid a penalty to keep you out of a pit. And the pit I'm talking about here is the pit of hell. Jesus, 2,000 years ago, stepped out of eternity into time to absorb in his body a payment for my sin that I can't pay back. His final words on the cross were, it is finished. And what he asks us to do to be made right with him is to not trust in our own religious good works for our salvation, but to trust in the good work that he accomplished for us 2,000 years ago. God is not going to accept people on the basis of their own good works, but he will accept people on the basis of the good work of his son, which you just received as a gift because you received it by faith. Faith is just another word of saying trust. It's not just an intellectual assent, but it's actual condition whereby you trust in what Jesus did. What's necessary to become a Christian is that single verb, believe, which means trust. 
And so our exhortation today, anybody within the sound of my voice, as the Holy Spirit convicts people of their need to trust Christ, is in their heart, respond to that convicting ministry by placing their trust in the finished work of Jesus for their salvation, the forgiveness of their sins, their eternity, and the safekeeping of their soul. It is not a matter of raising a hand joining a church, giving money. Quite frankly, it's not even a matter of praying a specific prayer. The the prayer is not the issue. It's the trust reflected in the prayer that's the issue. And we would encourage people to receive this free gift so you can be kept out of the ultimate pit, which the human race is destined for without Christ. If it's something that you need more explanation uh, on, I'll be available after the service to talk to you about that. Jeff Phipps, who's with us today, will be available to talk with you about that. Most important issue in a person's life is their personal trust in Christ for salvation. And so the next time I'm with you, we'll be taking a look at the enslavement of Joseph verses 25 through 36. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your truth, grateful for your word, grateful for how it ministers to us. For those of us, Lord, in a pit, I just pray that you would work in our lives in such a way that our trust in you would grow. As we walk out our faith this week, we'll be careful to give you all the praise and the glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name. And God's people said.